So I am not one uh, who is typically given to titling every sermon, but if I were to title uh, our sermon for Ecclesiastes 8, and I do invite you to start turning there, uh, the title would be The Long and Short of It. We as humans, we like nice, neat, tidy answers uh, to our questions. When we ask someone a question, one of the worst responses we can get is, eh, it depends. Or, well, on the one hand, but on the other hand, we don't like that. It's not neat. It's not tidy. That requires thought and reflection and processing and community and prayer and more to figure out what our next steps are. But if there is anything that Ecclesiastes is teaching us, it's that life is full of toil. There is no escaping that. There is hard work, some of which feels like vanity even. But since there is no escaping it, we are better off being as prepared as possible for that work and for keeping both the long view and the short view held in balance. So today the author of Ecclesiastes has a balanced offering of wisdom for us. When we as humans, again, look for answers, they're often simplistic ones that we're looking for. They're answers in the extremes, either this side or in that side. The author today wants to invite us to hold those extremes more in tension, more in balance. So I've broken up chapter 8 into four sections, which are wisdom calls for the long view, discretion, the short view, action, the long view, eternal eyes, the short view, daily delight. So those are the four sections we will look at. If you'll turn with me in the, your scriptures in the Bible, we're going to uh, start with our first section starting in uh, chapter 8, verse 1 of Ecclesiastes. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Don't take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Uh, excuse me, I lost my place. What are you doing? Whoever uh, keeps the command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. In these first six verses here, we're given a picture of a king's court, complete with royal counselors. That reminds us of other sorts of settings depicted in the Bible, where we see a similar thing uh, in the ancient world. Settings such as Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar, or Joseph before Pharaoh, or even Esther before King Ahasuerus, rather. These rulers exercised great power. They even had, of course, the power of life and death. Nebuchadnezzar, for example, he had planned to kill all the wise men if not even just one of them could explain for him the meaning of his dreams. And we read in the book of Esther, for example, that if a person was to just pop in and, and come before the king without the king having actually asked for that person to come to him or to him, that if they did that, and if he didn't extend his royal scepter and say, okay, it's all right, you can come. If he didn't extend that royal scepter, you're dead. So serving in the court of the king required great discretion and restraint, even in the face of what was or appeared to be an evil cause. This restraint wasn't for the sake of self-preservation, but for a greater good, 
if a counselor had the ear of a king, being hasty and leaving his presence would forfeit all possibility of influencing and shaping that king's decision-making for days and, and years to come. The preacher goes so far as to say, don't take your stand in an evil cause. That could maybe say, like, don't join an evil cause, but I think actually what uh, the author is saying there is, is don't protest when the king's command seems evil. That feels icky to us. It goes against our moral fiber. But this passage isn't saying don't oppose evil. Rather, it's counseling against just being hasty or reactionary to those things that we think are evil. It calls for being measured. We can see this because in verse 5, it says that the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. So justice absolutely is important. God repeatedly tells us in Scripture that we are not to turn a blind eye to wickedness or injustice. Ephesians 5.11, for example, says that take no in part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So justice and righteousness absolutely are important because they're part of the very heart of God. But in human affairs, sometimes wisdom calls for discretion and for patience. And we see this in the book of Esther. To quickly set the scene, if you've not read it before, or just a little foggy on it, there's one character, Haman, and he's kind of in the story just an evil guy. And so he has plotted to Uh, destroy the Jews, to have them killed by the king's decree. He has persuaded and bent the ear of King Ahasuerus to decree, yes, on this date, all Jews will be killed. The decree, uh, and so what we see in in Esther is that the, the decree goes out with the king's seal on it. The day of destruction of the Jews was approaching. The clock was ticking. The Jews knew their destruction was coming. It wasn't even a secret plot. And Esther decides to intervene, but not in the way that we might expect. Once she had gained the favor, she did go before the king, and we'll get to that. She went before the king unbidden, but she gained his favor. King said, okay, what do you want? And so we read in chapter 5 of Esther, verses 3 through 5. It says this, Esther 5, 3 through five, I really should start wearing glasses. <laughs> Getting older. I see the two, looking for the three. And the king said to her, <clears throat> What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So even in the midst of this urgent situation, again, the decree has gone out. The Jews are are weeping and wailing, terrified of what is to come. They're wearing sackcloth. They're in mourning. So even in this urgent situation, with Queen Esther being granted privilege and access and him saying up to half the kingdom, I will give it to you. What do you want? Esther doesn't go for Haman's neck. She doesn't go for the jugular. She doesn't call him out. Rather, she invites the king and Haman, the mortal enemy of the Jewish people, she invites him to a feast. 
And you think, okay, now we're going to get down to business. The feast has happened. Now we're going to get to business. But at the end of that first feast, the king reiterates his offer to the queen. Whatever you want, up to half of my kingdom. Just, just tell me. What does she say? Does she go for Haman's neck? No. Again, she says, tomorrow, can we have another feast? And would you invite Haman as well? Talk about discretion and patience. But that patience, of course, is paid off. It is rewarded, and the Jewish people do end up being delivered from destruction. And that's at just the right time. As we often acknowledge here at Roots, the culture that we live in, that we eat, that we sleep, that we breathe, every day it screams out for us to be outraged. It helps us identify all the ways that we have been victimized and marginalized. It is obsessed with rights, but not so obsessed with our responsibilities. And all of this appeals at some level to the sin nature that's inside each and every one of us. It is easy for us to get sucked in and strung along and to react in hasty and rash, counterproductive ways. If we truly believe that God is in control, ruling and reigning, even right now, how might that change or improve our reactions and our responses to friends and to family and to posts on social media, to the government? When was the last time that your verbal response or response of any kind to something that was personally or politically infuriating or disturbing, when was the last time that that was preceded by, that something came before, just a, a period of pausing, reflecting, praying, seeking godly counsel? Again, I'll say it. When was the last time when something that just landed in your heart, landed in your ear, and just you th wanted to just be outraged? When was the last time that before reacting to that, you took time to pray, to seek counsel, to fast, to just turn to God? I'm not saying we shouldn't have hard conversations with loved ones. I'm not saying we shouldn't write to our elected officials that we shouldn't engage in political discourse, but we have to get first things first. God is the ultimate sovereign who both plants and uproots elected officials, and who also, Acts 17 shows us, he's the one who plants us and puts us in our uh, seasons and times and locations, in our neighborhoods, in our families. He is still on the throne right now, ruling and reigning, even when it feels like he is not. So we would do well to pause on this reality and respond in worship, just in the same way that we see when Paul and Silas are thrown in jail, in the book of Acts, they don't demand their rights. They just start worshiping God. So on the one hand, wisdom calls for that long view of discretion. Of just, okay, let's not overreact. But on the other hand, it calls for the short view of taking decisive action. We read on in verses 6 through 9, Ecclesiastes 8. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. 
when man had power over man to his hurt. So after we've exercised patience and we've sought God through prayer and through meditating on his word and we've listened to godly counsel, there again does come a time for action. We can't merely pray with our words. We are called to pray with our lived lives. We pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done, and then we go forward. And we seek to live out lives of conviction that embody and incarnate his kingdom as best we can. Our faith is a faith of action. We are called to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. Living out our convictions can be scary. We often ask ourselves, if I take action though, with what I feel God calling me to, what is it going to cost me? What will my friends at school think of me? Will I lose my job? Will I lose a relationship of someone that I care about? Those are legitimate questions. Questions, again, that we all ask ourselves. We don't have any guarantees from God that they'll have positive, reassuring answers, though, either. The text says that man's trouble lies heavy on him, in part because we don't know what is to be. We don't know the future. No one can tell us with certainty how things will turn out. Even when our cause seems aligned with God's heart and his kingdom and his mission, we would hope that well, we can just be guaranteed of a, a positive outcome, but of course we can't. But that uncertainty doesn't mean we should shrink back from action, that we should try to save our own necks. Because to do that, to put off action, to put off the day of, the, uh, of death, if you will, or to try to retain our spirit, if you will, those actions are selfish and sinful. Or that, I guess, refusal to act. Metaphorically speaking, when God has called us to war, to gird up our loins for action, there is no discharge from that that isn't disobedience. Self-preservation at all costs is wrong. And again, we see this exemplified in Esther's story when Queen Esther, uh, when her uncle, Mordecai, who has effectively was, uh, has been a father to her, when he learns of Haman's plot to have the, the Jews destroyed, he appeals to Esther, who, again, herself is a Jew, to use her position as queen to save the people from genocide. And so we uh, read in Esther chapter 4. So we were in 5 a moment ago, jumping back to Esther 4. Verses 10 through 16. So Mordecai has uh, told Esther, you, you got to act. And Esther responds and says, she, to a messenger, Hathak, uh, she spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the, king's in, to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. What am I going to do? And so they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther with not necessarily the most tender words. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, God is sovereign. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house 
will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That landed with Esther. And so Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther knew. She had gotten a revelation of what the right thing, the right next step was for her. But the prospect uh, before that of, of literally dying for what she knew was right was just was initially too much to stomach and to overcome. She was understandably holding back, hoping to exercise a certain power over the day of death. I'm going to avoid that because that could be costly. She got that nudge, though, from her uncle, whose words echo Jesus' words, that any attempts that we make in this life to, to save, to hold on to, to, to clutch on to, and preserve our lives will actually end in the loss of true life. So she comes around and she realizes that, yes, perhaps indeed, this is my God-appointed time to take action by appealing to the king, even if it costs me my life. If I perish, I perish. One of the best lines from the movie Braveheart, it's an oldie but a goodie. When uh, William Wallace is facing certain death, he, I forget who he's even talking to, it just I remember the line, it, it stuck with me. He says, all men die, not all men truly live. Put a different way, Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday is tomorrow. And he's quoted as saying, if a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he is not fit to live. In a world as broken and as hurting as ours is, there is a time for discretion and there is a time for action, even if that action comes at great cost. So how might God be calling you at the outset here of 2022 for such a time as this? What might be your next step of action to see his kingdom advance just a little bit more fully in your family, your workplace, your community, to see the gospel proclaimed, to see justice given, to see mercy experienced? Where is he calling you to lift up your voice, to commit some of your time, to leverage your life? There's likely something on your radar. As I'm even saying these words, not the same thing amongst all of us I wouldn't expect, but maybe something on your radar, something that's been in the periphery of your attention, just kind of out there and not right, right in the center of it. But something that's kind of just, because it's on the periphery, it's easy to dismiss. I'm, I'm too young. I'm, I'm just, just a kid in school. Or uh, our family's too young. Or our kids are too young. It's been a long week. It's been a long month. It's been a long year. Now is not the time. But what small step could you take? Some step of action for the sake of Jesus. Is it defending the unborn or supporting the persecuted church? Is it coming alongside a peer who is struggling with their identity? Is it helping local households trapped in poverty or advocating for those involved in the criminal justice system? Is it faithfully checking in on a neighbor or providing a loving home to a child without a mom or a dad? Let's not use discretion or patience as a cloak or an excuse for not taking action and seeing the kingdom of God advance. Our text continues as we move on into section 3. 
Ecclesiastes 8, 10, and following. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of children of men is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Much to our chagrin, sometimes life is, or excuse me, much to our chagrin, sometimes life is not a closed system that is governed by karma. When we are little, we all have this very kind of black and white sense of morality that you do bad things and bad things always happen. You do good things and good things always happen. That's how our childlike minds intuitively expect the world to work. But we quickly learn even in childhood that that's actually not how life often happens. There's a futility to it. Truth be told, when we sin against someone else, though, we seldom think about it. And so we're actually kind of grateful that life isn't governed by this system of karma. It's only when we are pursuing righteousness, living for God, and then we experience something unfortunate or something sinful or evil that we just throw our hands up and say, this is no good. This is wrong. No good deed goes unpunished. And if that happens enough times or if we focus our attention on the unjustness of those incidences for ourselves or for others, it's very easy for a certain pragmatism to settle in to our hearts and our lives, to affect the way that we make decisions, how we should live and act. Well, why would I advocate for the unborn? Laws don't change. Just look at us. Decades later, Roe v. Wade is still a thing. Why would I befriend someone who is awkward and unpopular at school? I might be made fun of too. That's what happens to the unpopular kids. Why would I foster or adopt someone else's child? Have you heard how the foster system treats parents? No, thank you. Why try to do good when it just feels like bad always wins? The evil are praised, even at the temple. Commenting on this passage, Derek uh, Kidner, a uh, theologian, writes, The villains are being honored at the very scene of their misdeeds, again, at the temple there. And they're no longer alive even to cast their spell or their of fear or favor over anyone. So incredibly enough, the admiration must be genuine. The people must genuinely admire these people that acted corruptly, making it very clear that popular moral judgments can be totally astray, swayed by the evidence of success or failure and misconstruing heaven's patience as its approval. In this life, on earth, under the sun, as we embark on or continue in taking action of heralding truth and demonstrating love for the sake of the kingdom of God, wisdom again calls us to take the long view, to use eternal eyesight and not measure rightness, the rightness of our efforts 
merely by the results they produce or the apparent success of the outcome. No, we judge success not by fruitfulness, but by faithfulness. Not by outcomes, but by obedience. Not by asking, does this conform to the world, but does this conform to the king's character and his calling? Esther gained eternal eyes to see her life through these lenses as evidenced by her response of, if I perish, I perish. That's not the measure of success. This is the right thing to do. You could hear her saying to herself, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, as we read in Ecclesiastes. Don't be deceived by God's slowness and patience at judging sin, as though humanity's sin and rebellion isn't that big of a deal to him, as though the brokenness and verse 9's reference to man's power over other men to their hurt doesn't profoundly hurt the Father's heart as well. He's not asleep or distracted or understaffed or tolerant. No, 2 Peter 3, 9 through 11 gives us a very crystal clear insight into God's purposes for his patience. We read, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's the purpose for his patience. But then here's also a warning. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Peter and Ecclesiastes 8 are calling us to live lives not based on the outcomes that we see here on earth, but to have our eyes set on eternity. The book of Ecclesiastes is very focused on the human experience. Over and over that phrase is used of under the sun or on earth. But here in verses 12 and 13, we get this kind of rare glimpse where the author seems to be lifting our eyes off of this rock and to a future day, to the new heavens and new earth well beyond life under the sun, to the afterlife, to an eternity that lengthens well beyond our 60, 80, 100 years. We are called to live out lives for the kingdom in light of eternity, knowing that's where we'll see fully the fruit of our choices and our outcomes, or our actions, rather. So finally, we finish with wisdom's call back to the short view of daily delight. So in verses 15 through the end of the chapter, we read this. And I commend joy for man. As, uh, excuse me, and I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know it, he cannot find it out. 
for all his efforts to crack the code and to unravel the mysteries of life and the full counsel of the wisdom of God, the preacher comes to the conclusion that it's impossible. However much a person may toil in seeking to understand all the mysteries of God, he or she cannot and will not find it out. God is too vast. Life is too big. Our minds are too finite. As far as this life is concerned, we are called to use discretion while taking confident steps of action that aren't guaranteed to be visibly successful or fruitful this side of eternity. So where does that leave us? The preacher says, despite all that, we are to pursue and to choose joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and to drink and to be joyful. But... This isn't a mere pursuit of carnal pleasure or mere hedonism. It's not a call to just go hit the cracker barrel and get lit because, hey, there's no figuring it out. May as well just party it up. It sounds like his advice is eat, drink tomorrow because tomorrow we die. But it's not. That is not the testimony of Scripture. No, this is a call and an invitation to suck the marrow out of life, to pursue joy himself. Where else in scripture do we see a reference to eating and drinking? 1 Corinthians 10 31 uh, pops to mind for me. So whether you eat, or whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Ecclesiastes says we are to eat, to drink, and be joyful. And Paul says, commands us to eat and drink to the glory of God which is to say that the pursuit of God's glory is the source of our joy and us truly enjoying God fully and all that he gives us and all that he is is how we give him that glory. These two are not mutually exclusive. Rather, they, rather they are mutually enforcing of each other. We have no guarantees of life being smooth and pleasant. Just the opposite, in fact. We're guaranteed that if we want to follow Christ, there will be tribulation and hardship. But even through the worst of it, we can choose joy. We can choose to find delight and enjoyment for the glory of God. Every one of us, every day, we eat food. Every one of us, every day, we drink some sort of liquid. But not every one of us, every day, uh, choose joy or delight ourselves in him. But we often, we should, we ought to, because there is much to be joyful for. It is a deliberate action. It doesn't come naturally. Sometimes it just comes upon us. Maybe you see just a little baby giggling or something. And just There's no defenses against that. That just gets right in there and we take delight in it. But other days, it's harder to find things to be joyful. It is a muscle. It is something we have to exercise. We have to say, I am choosing joy today, even though this thing happened or this situation endures in my life, I'm choosing joy. And we need brothers and sisters around us to encourage us to, not in a turn that frown upside down sort of way, but in a, a quiet coming alongside. In men's Bible study this week, uh, one of our brothers was celebrating how he had received what felt just like a fresh, new, deeper revelation of his union with God, of God's love for him and delight in him. It swept over him as he was 
thinking about God on his way to work. He just had to pull the car over and let it wash over him and journal about it. I asked him if there was a particular scripture that he could stand on uh, to support the reality that he was feeling and experiencing when that feeling goes away. And all of a sudden, clouds come back in. Without missing a beat, he said, never will I leave you or forsake you. Never will I leave you or forsake you. That's the scripture. So when negative thoughts pop into my head, I can, and I'm paraphrasing this is how he said it, when negative thoughts pop in my head, I can just tell those thoughts, just keep on going, don't even bother. I know, never will he leave me or forsake me. That is choosing joy. That is choosing faith. Our family, each night when uh, we're able to be gathered around the table, uh, the six of us, we um, go around and we just share a high and a low from the day. And part of that is, or two highs, if we don't want to like, you know, whatever. Uh, Part of that's just encourage conversation, you know, that we engage each other, that there's some, also some relational awareness of what's going on in each other's lives, that we get to see life through each other's eyes as they experienced it that day. But another reason we do that is to help remind all of us that our days are drenched in God's goodness. And it is our job to to look back over what happened this day, this week, and to find the evidences of his grace, his goodness and kindness and faithfulness. And being joyful is contagious and edifying. I remember just a few weeks ago we were doing this when the snow uh, was upon all of us, going around the table, sharing joys, highs and lows. And so many of the things that my kids or my wife shared were like, yeah, because I got to be home for a few days, so we were kind of in the house together, experiencing life together. And just some of those things were like, that, that is, I forgot about that. One of the ones that stands out to me is just the beauty of seeing birds at the bird feeder, kind of all puffy and full, feathers all kind of ruffled out there, just feeding at the feeder with snow all around them, just seeing God's creation. It, that brought me jo- joy for, you know, a moment or two. And, but I forgot about that come dinner time. And that happened to be someone else's high that day and them sharing that. This is what I'm thankful for. This, is, this was a high for me. It kind of stirred that back up in me. So we need each other to encourage us uh, in pursuing and choosing joy. And it is contagious. One of the mystics, we don't talk a lot about mystics in our uh, church, our Reformed stream here, but there's some good stuff. There's some nuggets out there. And one of the mystics uh, from, I think, a couple hundred years ago, Teresa of Lizo said, my life is an instant, an hour which passes by. My life is a moment which I have no power to stay. I know, O Lord, that to love you here on earth, I have only today. Choose joy each day. We only have today. Write something in a journal. Share something with a friend or a family member. Sing a song. I would even encourage you, we're, we're not a, a, a demonstrative church, but put those hands up. Like, it's amazing. We are spirits incarnated and fleshed in bodies. So even just, just by yourself, I challenge you, just see if there isn't a string on your heart with a smile like, whoa, Oh, just use your body. Choose joy. Reject despair. Reject futility. Choose joy. So in closing, I want to circle back and reread some of verses 2 through 8, looking for our joy-inducing Savior. 
again, not reading all of them, but just choosing some of them. Uh, Verses 2, keep the king's command. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. Verse 5, whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Verse 7, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? Verse 8, no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. Church, brothers and sisters, choose joy because we worship Jesus, who, verse 3, kept the king's command. He did not flee from Pilate's presence. Choose joy because he did not take a stand in the evil cause of his mock trial and execution. He didn't call down a legion of angels to deliver him, but he allowed Pilate and the people to crucify him. Choose joy because, verse 5, he kept the king's command, and he did know. That is, he experienced, and he bore the full wrath of God for every evil thing that you and I have ever thought or done or will think or do. Choose joy because... Verse 8, we worship Jesus who after he was crucified, he did have the power to retain his spirit. And he had that authority. John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. So as we approach the the table today, take joy, eat and drink to the glory of God because he has discharged us from the war against flesh and blood, and he has delivered us from the wickedness we were given over to, incapable of delivering our own selves from it. And he has delivered us into freedom through his shed blood and the power of his spirit. Let's pray.